give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes, to the edges of our fingertips. I love that part of Brueggemann's prayer, and it tees up our theme for this morning, which is waiting is an embodied practice. Waiting is a practice that involves not just our minds, what we're thinking about as we wait, and not just our hearts, what we're feeling, but, but our whole body from the bottoms of our toes to the edges of our fingertips. We've called this series In the Waiting because we are recognizing that the season of Advent is all about waiting. In Advent, we first we remember that the first part of God's story as recorded in the Old Testament, was all about waiting for the promised Messiah, the one who would come to save and to set free the people of God. But also in waiting, we are participating in the second part of the story that begins after Jesus' ascension, in which the church, us, we today, are waiting for the Messiah's second coming, for the second advent, when Jesus will, will return to make all things new. So as we participate in this story of waiting, we're recognizing that there is an ache in the waiting and there is a hope in the waiting. There's great hope in the waiting because in the story and in this lifestyle of waiting, we know God's promises and we know God is faithful to his promises. And then at the same time, there, there is a deep ache here as well because there, there's so much in the world and in our lives that we just long for God to make right. So the biblical text I'm going to read for today, Psalm 130, it's going to name both of those things. It's going to name the hope in waiting, and it's going to name the ache in waiting. And in doing so, it will introduce us to waiting as an embodied practice. So a little background here. Psalm 130 is part of the Psalms of Ascent. These are Psalms 120 to 134. And most scholars believe that these Psalms were sung as the people of God marched on their way up to Jerusalem, as they ascended the, the path to Jerusalem for the annual festivals. So they're waiting for the culmination, the, the high point in their year where they get to celebrate together in Jerusalem, and they're singing these songs. And for us today, as we take up these same songs, they provide us with these fitting prayers for our own journey. We're following Jesus, and we're waiting for his return. So listen to Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in God, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Okay, so you see there in Psalm 130, it's named the ache, 
the, the longing, the cry out of the depths for God to be attentive, for God to be merciful, for God to redeem. That's one breath in the psalm. And then in the next breath, we get the hope, hope in God's word and response, hope in the Lord's unfailing love and his promises to, to forgive and to redeem. And it's important that it's naming both because within that ache and within that hope is where we learn to wait, is where we get to practice this waiting, this embodied waiting. Because we see in verse 5, the psalmist is saying, my whole being waits. Now, some translations, uh, maybe if you're looking at the ESV or the NRSV, have my, my soul waits which is okay, but I think sometimes we can take that word soul to mean this kind of disembodied spiritual essence, whereas in, in the Hebrew, the word nefesh really does mean my whole embodied self and life, all of me, uh, not just a part of me. This is my whole embodied self waiting for you. And then in verse 6, we get an image for what the psalmist means by that. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Any idea in Hebrew poetry when something is repeated exactly twice like this, what, what's being communicated? Why would this be repeated the same way? Any ideas? Scholar Bob Gluck? <laughs> yeah, for emphasis. It's uh, a typical poetic form of emphasis for intensity. The poet wants you to not miss this, like listen up, feel with me what I'm trying to communicate. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. So who are these watchmen? Uh, watchmen were people posted on the city uh, walls or by the city gate, and they were to watch actively and carefully for anything going amiss outside the city, for signs of intruders, for any sign of, of danger during the night. And so they were required constantly to be alert and attentive and then totally focused because one lapse of their attention, one lapse of their focus could be an absolute disaster for the city. So th this is not like a night security job where you're sitting back, listening to podcasts, kind of reading a book like, uh, what's his name, uh, Mike Ehrmantraut in Breaking Bad. Like this is, not, this is not the model of the night watchman. Uh, this, is, this is active. If you're a watchman, you have every sense attuned to the sounds and sights and smells and feelings uh, outside the city. So this is the, the epitome, the watchman, of an active, embodied practice of waiting. And the only uh, experience that I have in waiting for the morning like this, since I've never been a watchman, is going to a, a deer stand before morning breaks and waiting there for the woods to fill with light. Uh, there may be lots of uh, opinions in the room about hunting or, or deer hunting, but bear with me uh, as I explain this, this experience because... Um, even if you're not a, a sportsman, a hunter, I would commend it to you to go out in the woods before light and await there. Uh, it's quite magical. So let me describe a little bit what it's like. Feel free to close your eyes, put yourself there. You are going out into the woods. It is still, it's totally dark still. And you walk quietly and you're walking slowly 
into the woods. You're locating this place where you're going to wait for hours. Trying not to snap a twig or rustle leaves because that would disturb the animals. So you eventually find your spot. You climb up with your gear. You sit quietly down and you settle into wait. After your breathing slows, your attention moves off your body to everything that's around you. It's not light yet, so you're hearing little sounds. You're seeing little movements faintly. And all these sensations around you, you're starting to get a sense for them. So off to the left, you hear the slightest scuffle of a mouse in the leaves. Off to the right, you, you see this faintest movement of a chickadee that's flitted from one branch to another. You're breathing and you're smelling this rich, smell of decaying leaves and bark and soil. You start to feel the cold creeping into your boots and your gloves, so you start wiggling your toes and your fingers a little to keep them warm, but you're trying not to move. And by now, it's getting light enough so you can make out some individual trees. You see little clumps of brush, and your eyes start scanning the landscape for horizontal brown lines. It's the telltale sign of might indicate a deer. But your whole body uh, starts to tense up in anticipation. You're focusing on deep breathing. Keep yourself calm. A twig snaps behind you and your heart lurches and you, you turn slowly and it's a squirrel. <laughs> so you keep waiting and looking, waiting, listening, waiting, moving ever so slightly to keep warm, waiting with your whole body every sense attuned to the environment because all the action, the necessary action, can happen in a matter of moments. You have to be ready. So you're waiting. Now, um, that experience, is, it takes a lot out of you. Um, it's, you're just sitting there, but it's exhausting because you're fully attuned and every little sound, every little sight, it's, it's both difficult and thrilling to wait with your whole body like that, with all of your senses. So I really feel what Brueggemann is talking about when he asks God, God, give us the grace, give us the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes, to the edges of our fingertips, more than the watchman waits for the morning, more than the deer hunter waits for the morning. But yeah, it's not easy. Um, and just like that cold creeps into my hands and I'm waiting in the early morning, there's this ache that enters as a part of the waiting. As great theologian Tom Petty once said, the waiting is the hardest part, right? The waiting. Okay, that would have been a good lament for today, actually. Uh, the waiting, because it is, the waiting is hard. It's just hard. It doesn't matter if you're waiting for something that you're looking forward to or waiting for something that you're dreading. It's just hard to wait. So what does it feel like for it to be hard, difficult, aching to wait, and also hopeful and anticipatory, that, that strange mix? Because in Psalm 130, waiting is functioning as basically a synonym for hoping. So waiting is the hoping, and hoping is the waiting. And you're doing this with your whole body. And, and this waiting as hoping, it's active, but it's not frenzied. 
just like you're sitting there waiting for the morning to come. It's active, but it's still. Nor is this waiting as hoping uh, entertain some kind of fantasy to make you feel better. You know, the morning really will come. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in this fabulous book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a book that he's writing about these Psalms of Ascent. And he says that waiting and hoping is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And waiting as hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or a fantasy to protect us from boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. So what is it that the psalmist is waiting for? What is it that we are waiting for? I think like the psalmist, we are waiting for the revelation of God. We are waiting for the revelation of God's love, the revelation of God's new creation, for his story to be fulfilled. Just as the sun rises and illumines this dark world, so the Son of God will illumine a whole new world with his grace, with his love, and he will welcome us into that world forever. That's the promise. That is the hope, that is the waiting, and it is difficult. And yet what we are waiting for makes it worth it. The most difficult times of waiting is when you know some kind of judgment is coming. So like when, as a kid, I would do something nasty or conniving at home, and my mom would catch me. She'd take me by the arm and she'd say, Wesley, we're going to wait till your dad comes home, and then we'll figure out what to do with you. Like, no, no, kill me now. <laughs> you don't, don't make me wait for dad. Uh, when we're waiting for something, we know that the, the consequence of which will be a disaster or that judgment will be coming. Obviously, it's really painful to wait. And even when we know that something good is coming, though the waiting can be hard, but at least we know that as we wait, as we take the next step, as we continue to be still and hopeful and active, that it's going to be worth it. And, and Jesus is coming, the second advent. Mercy is going to triumph over judgment. Beauty is going to triumph over ugliness. Grace is going to triumph over effort. It's all going to be worth it. But we still have to wait. And the author of Hebrews talks about this when he says that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. There will be a second advent not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, the complete salvation to those who are waiting for him. And we don't know when that's going to happen. That's the difficult part. That's, that's why the waiting's the hardest part. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be in 10,000 years. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 42, keep watch, stay wakeful, be alert, be attentive, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So we're waiting for this ultimate morning, this second advent, this morning when Jesus comes and, and we take this form of active, watchful, embodied waiting 
as we follow Jesus today. But even within that horizon of the ultimate waiting, the ultimate morning, we can apply that same posture of waiting to shorter horizons, to things that we are waiting for maybe tomorrow or the next week or the next month or the next year. The same posture can be translated into those situations. So maybe you, in this season, you are waiting for healing. Uh, Perhaps you're you're waiting for a, a word from God in a season where you're discerning something very important. Uh, Perhaps you're waiting for uh, a sense of assurance in the midst of of a a heavy doubt that you have and you're longing for comfort. Maybe you're waiting for a desire to be fulfilled that you've carried, a desire that you feel is godly and that you want God to fulfill for you. Uh, Perhaps you're waiting for a friend or a family member to really encounter Jesus and for their life to be transformed. What is that for you in this season beyond the ultimate horizon, the ultimate morning that we're all waiting for? Where is it that you're feeling the ache of waiting the most? Where is it are you, that you're desiring hope the most in your waiting? Whatever that particular place is, the Spirit is inviting us very clearly this morning to wait with our whole selves, to wait with our whole embodied self. And what I mean by that, what I think the psalmist in 130, Psalm 130 means by that, is that rather than just thinking about this, um, this thing that I'm waiting for, which can quickly turn into anxiety, the Spirit is inviting us to feel the waiting literally in our bodies so that this waiting can be channeled into hopeful action. Okay, because sometimes when waiting remains internal, when it remains sort of just a mental thing, it can stay there and it can become unproductive. Whereas if we are feeling, if, if we're practicing waiting as this embodied thing, then the Spirit is going to move our bodies into whatever God has for us, into the next step, into God's will, into God's mission. So what I want to do now is actually guide us through a practice of that right now in this room. Um, And I want us to to practice this before I close and before I turn it over to the band. And in doing so, I want you to name not just the ultimate waiting that we're practicing together as the church, but name that waiting that perhaps you thought of as I was running through the various examples. Um, What is it on a nearer horizon that you are aching for in your waiting, that you're hoping for? Um, so whether you're, you're online with us or here in the room, I want you to um, grab a chair and make sure your back is up straight against that chair and your feet planted on the ground. <clears throat> Just roll your shoulders back, make sure you're grounded, close your eyes. Take a deep breath in and out. And if you haven't already, just silently name what you are waiting for, what you want to meet God in the midst of waiting for. And as you name that waiting, I want you to feel it from the bottom of your toes and in your feet. And I want you to do that by tensing that part of your body and then relaxing.
So tense your feet, feel the weighting there, and relax them. Move up, feel the weighting in your calves. Tense and relax. Up into your legs, tensing your hamstrings and relaxing. Feel the weighting there. And just keep moving up your body. Place the weighting in that part of your body. Tense and relax in the middle of your body. In your torso. In your shoulders, in your upper back. Feel the weighting out in your arms, down your arms, through your elbows, to your hands and your fingers. Tense and relax. And move back up to your neck and your head. Feel the weighting there. Just tense up your whole body as you feel the ache of that waiting. And then relax and give a big exhale. The ache is in the tension, and the hope is in the relaxation and in the stillness. Just take another moment and name that waiting before God. And now that you feel the waiting in your body, what is your body going to do? You can open your eyes. How will you carry this waiting forward with your body? How will you live out the ache today, this week? in what God has for you next? How are you gonna live out the hope that you felt in the, the stillness and in the waiting there as well? How are you gonna do that actively, but non-anxiously? How is God the Spirit leading you to do that attentively and courageously and joyfully and creatively? Since you named that waiting just between you and God, I encourage you to keep talking to God about this. Um, maybe practice this again later when you're in a moment of stillness and quiet again and just keep asking, God, how are you leading me to move forward with my body in this lifestyle of waiting? For me, whenever I need a creative idea to move me, I often go to poetry. It gives me images and actions and ideas that inspire me. And so I wanna move, I wanna end uh, with a, a poem that is just moving to me on, on lots of levels, and I hope it will be moving to you. Uh, perhaps you've actually heard me read it before. That's okay. It, it bears repeating. Uh, it's a poem by Abigail Carroll, and it's called How to Prepare for the Second Coming. Another title of this poem very well may have been How to Wait for Jesus with My Whole Being. Okay, this is a poem about waiting. It's a poem about hoping and aching. So this is How to Prepare for the Second Coming. 
Start by recalling the absolute goodness of rain and repent for every grumble you have ever made about the weather. This will take approximately forever. Next, you'll want to commit a theft. With deft lockpicking and shrewd hand, steal back the hours you fed to the hungry God of work. Then squander them on hydrangeas, Wordsworth, voluntary sidewalk repair. Teach a child to lace a shoe. Your child or another's, any four-year-old will do. And while you're at it, set the alarm for three and fumble through the dark to the pond to guard the salamanders as they cross the road. If, having accomplished these tasks, you wish to go on, sit at your desk and carefully design a few radical acts of grace, by which I mean murder of a sort. You must willfully, passionately kill the living, breathing debt owed you by those who stole your goods, your rights, or the jewel that was the beating muscle of your hope. Apart from this, you cannot know the full extent of love, and for precedent, refer to the cross. Thrust your nails into dirt and plant a few leeks, carrots, radishes perhaps. Get scandalously intimate with the earth. After all, it is where you will live when the lamb lies down with the lion and the lion has become your friend. And when the water of the new world breaks, all is said and done, heaven and earth made one as the prophets foretold. You will lose each doubt to a song, which is a kind of praise and reap the good you sowed. Amen.